Yeah, so one of the interesting things about being the age that I am is as the number of gray hairs grow, all of a sudden I have to start putting these on to see my own sermon notes here. So it'll be interesting to see if I can balance that and still be able to see you out there because you're all fuzzy. But anyways, um, so what we've been doing at Communion Church uh, the last couple months is we've been going through a series on the fruits of the Spirit. Uh, And we've been going through the fruits of the Spirit kind of as a a topical series based off of Galatians 5, but basically looking at each one of those fruits of the Spirit and then kind of expounding on those each week to talk about uh, what does it look like to have joy in your life? What does it look like to have love in your life? And just as a way of reminding us what the fruits of the Spirit are, I'm just going to read Galatians 5, 22 and 23 real quick. It says this, uh, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So this morning, I thought we could talk for a few minutes about peace. What peace is, what peace is not, and what it should look like in the life of a Christian. If we're supposed to be bearing these fruits in our lives, what does it look like to bear the fruit of peace in your life? To answer those questions... I thought we could sit in a single scripture this morning, even though it's kind of a topical sermon by nature. I like to go straight to one text and kind of sit there and see what that has to say about it. So if you would with me, if you have your Bibles, uh, open them up to Ephesians chapter 2. Kind of one of my go-tos, Ephesians chapter 2 is, well, it's my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. Um, It had a profound effect on my life specifically the first part of it, uh, being able to look at my own life and actually being able to look back and see God's hand in my life. Ephesians chapter 2 is like one of those, you know, if you look at one of my older Bibles, everything is underlined. There's exclamation points. There's highlights everywhere. Things are circled. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 really changed my view of God's sovereignty over my life. So let's go ahead. If you got your Bible, let's, let's turn to chapter 2 of Ephesians. I want to start, though, and all the way down to verse 14. That's what's going to be applicable to our our, uh, talk about peace this morning. Uh, As as we do, before we dig into the word, I always like to just say a short prayer, ask for God's help as we read his word. So just bow your heads with me real quick. Father God, we want to come to your word uh, with humble hearts. We want to approach this every time we do with an attitude of expectation that you can teach us something new. Uh, You can teach us something beautiful about yourself, about your love for us. So we know that we need your assistance to understand these things that are too wonderful for our understanding. Grace is too big for us to even imagine. We trust that we will see all of that in your word this morning. So it's for your glory, for your name's sake that we pray. Amen. Okay, look with me if you will. Ephesians chapter 2, starting verse 14, says this. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Okay, there's a lot to digest in those few verses. Uh, This is such a rich portion of Scripture. 
But before we dig in too much, we need to ask ourselves uh, how we are going to define peace. Now, I think we normally think of peace primarily as a lack of conflict, kind of the opposite of war, the opposite of fighting. But that, that doesn't seem to be what the Bible is using as a definition for peace, especially in this text. And understanding that might be helpful to us as, as we realistically try to apply this concept to our relationships. Because if we take on the idea that, that having peace is a complete lack of conflict, well, then that's going to make peace impossible in your life, right? Because we are going to experience conflict in this life. And we can actually have, though, and I'm going to argue healthy conflict. We can actually have healthy conflict in our lives, even though it may not be comfortable. There are almost always times that we do not agree. And conflict, although uncomfortable, does not have to mean that we cannot have peace. In, in fact, many good relationships, many good relationships then will contain a healthy conflict. An example of that would be the first time that I had dinner at, um, at Jim Fickert's house. Jim Fickert is the lead pastor of our church. And when we first started uh, attending Communion Church, my wife and I really had this sense of, kind of like you do here, this is family. This is home. I can actually just be myself here and, and, and worship with people and not worry about uh, things being too flashy. I, I had the sense that the gospel was preached every week. We were actually reading the word together. It was just, it was so rare. So when we found that church, we had this feeling of finally we are home. And so the lead pastor of the church, Jim Frickert, asked me to come over with my family for dinner. So the first time that our family sat down uh, to dinner with, with Jim and Esther, we had we just started attending communion, right? And so we brought over all our kids, and now all our kids were very little at this point. This is quite a few years ago now. And so after dinner, um, all our kids went off to start playing outside. They were all tiny little kids playing around their backyard, and, and Jim and I started to have a great conversation about baptism and communion. Uh, and a conversation that I felt was, was really rich. While we held almost exactly the same views on those sacraments, there was this one little point of sharp disagreement. It wasn't, it was just one little facet of it, but it was, we had come to very different conclusions. Now, <clears throat> that's when we spent some time talking, disagreeing, discussing how we both came to our conclusions. Now, to be clear, this was a point of conflict in a new relationship that I had just begun to invest in. Now, my poor wife is watching this, and I remember her on the way home, driving home, looking at me and saying, what did you do? <sighs> do we have to find a new church now? Uh, because you just got in a fight with a pastor, and now um, we might have to find, I really liked this church. What, what did you do to us? Um, well, when she asked me that, I was stunned because after that conversation, I wanted to be a part of his church more than ever. Because for one, in my background in churches, people very rarely challenged you and, and encouraged you to sharpen your beliefs. People very rarely would, would point out like, hey, I don't think you're right there. They wouldn't 
they wouldn't point that out. And, and for me, I saw that as, as real conviction and actually real pastoral care. I saw his pastoral heart in helping me think through my convictions. With all honesty, if you were watching us converse that night, it probably looked a little bit like an argument. It wasn't. And by the way, Jim was right. I was wrong. I, I only say that because he's not here. <laughs> the point that I'm trying to get to is that the sometimes conflict is going to happen even in peaceful relationships. No, not yelling, not screaming, not hostility, but we have to realize that we are wrong sometimes. And if we are wrong sometimes, then the other people are also wrong sometimes. Now, a bunch of people who are wrong sometimes are going to try and have community and live life together. We're going to run into conflict. We're going to run into conflict with each other. We're going to run into conflict with the truth. Now, traditionally, what people who want to seek peace, though, in situations like that, do one of two things. One, we run from conflict, or at least we hold it at an arm's length, usually ostracizing the person or the situation that we had conflict with, right? We just avoid the person altogether, ditch that relationship, and, and we usually label them as, you know, toxic or something like that. That person didn't agree with me, so they have to be wrong. The second thing we do is we pretend that the conflict doesn't exist. The other reaction is we pretend like it didn't really happen. We avoid the issue and hope that by avoiding it, we'll, it'll somehow bring peace to the situation. By not addressing problems, problems, maybe everyone will forget about them and we can just move on. Well, there has to be a better way because neither of these end up resolving anything, right? There's no progress. There's no resolution. So if peace then is not a lack of conflict, what then is peace? Or better yet, what does peace look like? How do we as Christians, manifest the fruit of peace in our life. Well, technically, the, the word that, that the Apostle Paul used in, in the book of Ephesians here that we just read a little while ago, uh, technically, that word peace means to, to join together, to take pieces that are, are broken and wrap around and tie them off. It literally means to take and rejoin something that's broken and wrap it up to tie it together into a whole, specifically wholeness with all the essential points and parts joined back together. Peace then, in, in the biblical sense, is being brought back together with that from which we were broken off from, to be brought back together with that which what we were separated from, being made whole again. And I think you and I would call that reconciliation. The key for us this will be in, in chapter 2, verse, verse 14, I believe. It, it says, he himself is our peace. So if that peace is manifested in the work and life of Jesus Christ, what were the things that he did that brought peace? We can answer that with a million little things, I think, if we open our eyes and read the Gospels. But if we look at our text this morning, we see pointed out clearly right after that, he himself has our peace, but he broke peace down the walls of separation, both between God and man. He broke down the walls of separation between Israelites and Gentiles. There was a hostility, a separation there. And one of those walls of separation being the commands expressed in ordinances. 
Now, to expound on what that means, he's referring to the ordinances of ceremony and cleanliness that the Israelites were to abide by that are abolished on the cross. And that is why we, not, why we do not follow all the rules and ordinances prescribed in our Old Testament. Not anymore. Not after Christ came to reconcile. Now, that doesn't mean we throw out the whole law, right? The law still contains much of what we still must abide by to live good lives and be constantly working at the process of removing sin from our lives and becoming more like Christ. But the rules of washing, washing, sacrificing, and eating were on purpose to separate the Jews from the other nations. And when Jesus died on the cross, the text says that that died with him. And he tore down those separations. It's fascinating if you've ever taken time to study the Jewish temple. There's, a, there's an outer court, right, that's just for Gentiles. And then a, then a wall with gates to be able to pass through for the Israelites. There's a court for women. There's a separate area only for the priests. And finally, there's, there's a giant curtain that separates even the priests from the innermost part, what they call the Holy of Holies. The whole system of the Jewish temple, the very heart of their religion, is designed to be, for us, a visual picture of separation. And God did this on purpose. This temple was his design. But that separation is just a physical picture of a spiritual reality. Because sin separated us from God. And then sin also separated us from each other. Sin separates us from God, and sin separates us from our common man. Ephesians said that there was a dividing wall of hostility. Hostility between God and man, and between man and his brothers and sisters. But in verse 15, it said, By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So Jesus makes peace by taking those that are separated, walled off, and reconciling them, making them whole again. Once we see peace as a reconciling work to achieve holiness, wholeness, um, we want to see that peace, what, what peace means to different areas of our life. Um, three things. What First, what, what peace means between us and God, uh, what peace means in regard to our relationships, and then what does it mean to, be, to bring peace to the wider world as we engage with it? Okay, first, what, what peace with God means? Well, this one is first because it has to be. It's, just, it's of first importance. We can argue how the parameters that God sets for us actually causes us and our families to thrive. Uh, we can argue that the Christian life is, is a great way to live and we should abide by these things. But if we have to be honest, if there is eternity, if there is something greater than just this life, the things that we can see and touch and do, then that thing has to be dealt with. Because there's something beyond this life. What good does it do for us if we're to put first our efforts to make this short life better? So what do we do with that? One of the aspects of, of the gospel or good news is that he came. Jesus came, like our text said, 
in order to reconcile us to him. But by its definition, reconciliation cannot happen if there's not a separation, if there's not a problem. That forces you, that forces us to accept the fact that we are not okay on our own. We're not well by ourselves. We make mistakes. We hurt people. We hurt each other. We are the cause of our hostility. And that hostility isn't just against each other. Ultimately, then, that hostility is against God. If God created us to be good and we keep choosing the wrong things and being drawn to the wrong things again and again, then we have to be the problem. But if we ourselves are the problem, he himself is our peace, like our text said. God didn't just leave us to our problems. He didn't just ask us to clean up our own mess. He stepped into his creation to solve the problem himself. But he didn't leave it at that. He actually taught his followers the right way to live, the right motivation. So in other words, peace with God cannot mean, like I've heard so many times, that that God and me have an understanding. God and I have an agreement. I'm pretty much a good person. And so in the end, all things will work out. Peace with God has to mean accepting his action to make peace. It means submitting yourself under Jesus as the only way, as the only one who could actually bring peace. Peace with God means submitting to his work of reconciliation. There's no way around it. We have to submit to him. Now, second, what does it mean to bring peace to our relationships? This one is second for a reason. Because first, we saw that God was willing what God was willing to do to reconcile us to him. He was willing to descend from his throne to a manger and eventually a cross. And in that, he sets the bar pretty high. Romans chapter 12 has a great little section in it that's called, uh, that's usually referred to as the marks of a true Christian. This is a great little passage of scripture and there's a section within that the marks of a true christian that specifically speaks to us about relationships it says this in verse 14 bless those who persecute you bless and do not curse them rejoice with those who rejoice weep with those who weep live in harmony with one another do not be haughty but associate with the lowly never be wise in your own sight Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So, If we are to put what we say we believe then into action, it seems like this text is telling us that we should do everything in our power to reconcile broken relationships in our lives. And also to never take vengeance, to never get our just desserts to to those who have harmed us or hurt hurt us. When we have the opportunity, we need to turn from taking vengeance and also to forgive but to forgive endlessly because we have been forgiven endlessly. That seems like a lot, but to whom much is given, much is required. 
It's hard, but it's beautiful to see this in action. I made a new friend um, recently who is doing this work of reconciliation. Now, he had been out of touch with his mother for years, and they hadn't spoken in years. Uh, but recently, he had a conversion. Uh, he joined a local recovery group. He admitted that he had a problem with alcohol, and he started attending a church. He got baptized and became a new person. In that, he decided to reach out to his mother, who had this broken relationship with him. Even though she hadn't done anything to reach out to him, she hadn't done anything to merit him reaching out to her. In fact, there was a list of wrongs that he was keeping against her. But he saw when he became saved, the work that God did to save him. And all of a sudden, him forgiving and working uh, at reconciliation with his mother didn't seem as big of a thing anymore. He saw in light of all that he had been forgiven, him forgiving his mother and going the extra mile to reach out to her was a small thing. Him holding on to his hurt was slowing down his sanctification, and he could see it. So he now is working at this, and every Sunday he calls his mother, who he hasn't spoken to, and I wanted to say 10 or 15 years they hadn't spoken at all, and now he calls her every Sunday afternoon to check in and slowly rebuild that relationship, to rebuild the, the relationship between mother and son. And it's going beautifully. He got over himself and he reached out to her. He let go of his hurt. He let go of pride to do what he could. Like the text says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. There's a lot of people who are living in enmity with others, whether it is family relationships or old friends, coworkers that might be out to get you. So the response that, that we should have, according to Romans 12, is that we should be the ones who do everything in our power to live at peace with others. It doesn't work in every situation. We know this, but in many situations, when we are the ones who humble ourselves, when we are the ones who ask forgiveness and freely forgive, we can reconcile. We cannot underestimate ever the power of humbling yourself. The third thing we want to talk about in peace is what does it mean to bring that peace to the wider world as we engage with it? The wider world. So now as, as a church family, we are here this morning, and we came together to worship, to learn, to fellowship, to pray. But part of the reason for that is so that we can return to the world around us and bring the joy of this reconciliation and, and the peace of God to those who don't know him yet. That is part of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Remember Matthew 22, Jesus said that, that loving your neighbor as yourself was the second greatest commandment ever given in all of the law. It wouldn't be very loving to know that there is a complete salvation and reconciliation and to hide that information from your neighbor. 
That is where we come to our charge as ministers of reconciliation. So what does it mean to be a minister of reconciliation? Let's look at 2 Corinthians, and I think it gives us a really good picture of this. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. And you can open there and you can, you can keep it there. We'll refer back to it a little bit. But it says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old passed away. Behold, new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So in being born again, being made alive in Christ, not only are we a new creation, but we are entrusted with the message of reconciliation. We are reconciled to reconcile. We are reconciled to be reconciling. We are given peace to be peacemakers. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And we are sent back into the world as ambassadors for Christ. What does it mean to be an ambassador? Uh, because this is literally what the text said. And this is what we mean when we talk about this a lot at Communion Church. When we talk about the gathered and the scattered church. And more specifically, the first church, uh, that is you and your family, the gathered church, that's us here this morning, and the scattered church is when we go back into the world around us. First gathered and scattered. When we come here or we come together, this is the gathered people of God. We worship, we pray, uh, we study, we lean on each other, right? That's what fellowship looks like. But we aren't sent back to our normal everyday lives. I'm, so, I'm sorry, but then we are sent back to our normal everyday lives as ambassadors. We are sent back as ambassadors of a better kingdom, ambassadors of a different way. This church scattered among the wider communities, scattered to all different types of people, economic backgrounds, histories, and experiences. So the beauty of that is that when you look around you on a Sunday morning, you see people from all different types of communities, jobs, positions, and even cultures. That means that we bring the message that we've learned here into so many different spheres in the world around us. It doesn't stay here. It's built up here and it's spread back out week after week. We spread and then we come back together because we need this. We need to worship. We need to be reminded of what the gospel is. That word ambassador is, is such a great picture of what we are called to be. Ambassadors are, are by nature in a land that is not their own, right? They do not belong in the land that they are in. 
They belong to a completely different kingdom, but they live peaceably amongst the nation they are in to bring proper representation of their homeland. And that's how we need to look at it when we go back into our spheres. We should then look different. There should be something that is different enough about us that people should at least recognize that this is not our kingdom. We need to live peaceably, but look different. And when we manifest the, the fruits of the Spirit, when we, when we show the world what the marks of a true Christian are, we preach the gospel. When we manifest the fruits of the Spirit, it should be something that people around us see as attractive. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, self-control are all things that anyone would look at as good. There is something about the Christian life that gives us greater confidence, greater peace, greater love, and a greater joy. But that's not the end of our ambassadorship. We're called to live differently for a purpose. That purpose we read in verse 20. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We can't forget that the end goal of all our life is to point to the good news of Jesus Christ. That has to be our ultimate goal. Not to live a better life just for the sake of the good that it brings. Now, it does bring good that is tangible. It's measurable, the good that we can bring to the world. But there is something deeper, something more real that causes that fruit to grow and manifest in our lives. When Ephesians chapter 2 mentions Jesus himself as our peace, it said that he preached peace to those that were far off and to those who were near. I found it interesting as I studied that word translated as preached. There is literally proclaimed the gospel. So a more literal translation might say, he taught the gospel, peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. The answer and the source of, of being a peacemaker in this world comes from our understanding of this gospel. And again, that is why we are here week after week after week after week until Jesus comes back because we need to be reminded of the gospel. Everything in us is bent to forget. We are, like the Israelites were called, a stiff-necked and forgetful people. And so we have to come back and remind ourselves and be taught what the gospel is, what the gospel means week after week. Because when we realize how much has been done for us, when we have an actual understanding of what the gospel actually is, it is natural for us then to be emboldened to spread that gospel into our spheres as we go back out. So if we lean into this idea of the cycle that, that the church gathers and scatters and gathers and scatters, we learn and celebrate here, but that equips us for the work of ministry, which usually happens outside of these walls. We don't want to be churches that create more and more programs for the sake of creating our own little kingdoms. That's not what we're called to do. 
We want our congregations to be plugged into businesses, schools, homeschool groups on boards and committees in local government, being part of local service groups. We don't want to build huge churches, but we want to be churches. And that blesses our community and brings the gospel with us into all sorts of dark corners of this world. With that, we want to equip each other well so that we go out into the different spheres that God has put us in and be a light and a help to our world. That doesn't minimize the church then as being a vital part of your life, right? What that does is it actually makes the gathered church crucial to that cycle. This is where we recharge our batteries. This is where we remind ourselves of God's gifts. This is where we support and pray for each other. With that, Sunday morning becomes a bigger part of your week. And the more of yourself that you spend in the world around you, the more of yourself that you give away by the time you come back, you need some refilling. You come back empty, tired, hungry. That's one of the many reasons that we take communion. Right? We want to remember that as God never intended for us to eat once and never have to again. He gave us the gift of, of communion as a sacred element of the Christian life. This reminds us that we need to be filled, but also in a very spiritual way and real way, communion does fill us. We were built with the spiritual and physical in mind. We don't get to make those huge separations. We tie those back together again bringing them back into wholeness as we worship and pray and commune. So I pray that as we come forward today for communion, I, I pray that you would feel God pulling those strings around you to make you whole and to make your relationship with him whole by the work of Jesus' broken body and shed blood. And I pray that you take a moment before you come forward today to do communion and think about that. Let's pray.